Coming to you live from the Moors near Basco Manor, it's the Dockerverse podcast, episode 121, Rambunctious Prawns Befiddle My Squid. I'm your announcer, Colin Spears. On this episode, we've got a horror movie review, readings from the Dockerpedia, and a final instalment of the Hexcrawl. And now, fresh sorting out that whole hound affair, here's Doc. Hello there, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Doc Cross. I would like to thank Colin Spears for being the first of what should be at least five guest announcers, uh, possibly more if I can get people to do it. And that's going to be pretty interesting and pretty fun. I enjoy having other people do things. I'm trying to get to the point where I actually have people on the podcast. I will hopefully be able to do that at Dundercon. Not sure. Anyway, I hope you've all had a good week, and our week was pretty decent. We've had a lot of sun as I'm recording this, which is actually about a week and a half before you're going to hear it. We have a little rain coming up on my birthday, because when you're born on January 29th in the Northern Hemisphere, you run a good chance of having rain on most of your birthdays. I would say eh, probably 75% of my birthdays, it's rained or at least been really overcast. A couple times we had major storms. A few times we've actually had nice sunny weekends, and that was good. But enough about my birthday, which I spoke of in the last episode. What we really need to do right now is to thank all of my wonderful, wonderful patrons over on Patreon. And you could become one of them. You know, just listen at the end of the program, and I'll tell you how to do it. So right now, I'm going to thank Peter, Kevin... Mark, David, Marion, James, Bruce, and Avis. Thank you all. You guys are swell. You are the best of the best, and I hope you enjoy the episode. And now, speaking of the episode, let's get on to the first segment. Well, folks, it's the start of another month, and time to have our horror movie review And this one is a classic. It probably should have been among the ones I did in October, but uh, I didn't get around to it. It's uh, it's one of the it's the best version of a movie that has been made many many times, and that is Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Now there have been countless movie versions, uh, several in in Hollywood and. God knows everywhere else, low budget, high budget. There have been comedy versions. There have been at least one version where they swapped out the sex and Dr. Jekyll turned into Sister Hyde. I think that was a Hammer movie. And then there have been just all sorts of knockoffs that didn't use the name Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but they used the basic plot that Robert Louis Stevenson came up with. Uh, You know, it's all about a doctor who tries to separate his bad from his good and Things go wrong. Like I say, this version is probably the best. It's the 1931 pre-code movie that's directed by Ruben Mamoulian and starring Frederick March. Now, some years later, Spencer Tracy made one. Not nearly as good. Tracy was pretty much miscast, and the visual effects weren't that great either. But this one, this one's really good. Now, the plot is that Dr. Henry Jekyll, 
portrayed by Frederick March, is a kind English doctor in Victorian London. And he's certain that within each man lurks impulses for both good and evil. And he's right on that. He is desperately in love with his fiancée, Muriel Carew, played by Rose Hobart, and wants to marry her immediately. But her father, Brigadier General Sir Danvers Carew, played by Halliwell Hobbs, orders them to wait. One night, while walking home with his colleague, Dr. John Lanyon, played by Holmes Herbert, Jekyll spots a bar singer, Ivy Pearson, played by Miriam Hopkins, and she's being attacked by a man outside her boarding house. Jekyll drives the man away and carries Ivy up to her room to attend to her. Ivy tries to seduce Jekyll, but though he is tempted, he leaves with Lanyon, and that's that, or is it? So, things go from there, where Jekyll starts experimenting with drugs that he believes will unleash his evil side. He drinks a concoction, boom, turns into Edward Hyde, who is an impulsive, sadistic, violent, amoral man, and actually kind of primitive-looking. He's got kind of a, you know, I don't know, ape-man face, more or less. And Hyde finds Ivy in Music Hall, takes her back to her place, he offers her financial support, he rapes her, psychologically manipulates her, and uh, later on, when Hyde reads in the papers that Sir Danvers and Muriel are planning to return to London, Hyde leaves Ivy and threatens to kill her if she tells anything. And that's, you know, the rest of the movie. You've probably seen maybe this movie, maybe some other version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but uh, it's Hyde doing evil things. It's Jekyll being feeling guilty because Hyde's done this stuff. He's trying not to let Hyde out, but Hyde keeps getting out. After a while, he doesn't even need to drink the potion. Hyde just pops out whenever, I don't know, Jekyll gets a boner or something. But this is a really, really good movie. Uh, Frederick March is just incredible in it. Um, all the other actors are good. March pulls off this dual role where he's playing a nice guy, a kindly guy, a guilty guy, a typical Victorian guy who, you know, feels guilty about every other thing that he does, and except exploiting natives in other countries, of course. And uh, Hyde is just, you know, a primitive, dangerous monster. He even looks like a monster in this movie. In a lot of movies, he just turns into a, you know, different-looking version of a man. No, 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 not in this one. Like I say, he looks like some sort of caveman. Looks like almost like an ape. And if you haven't seen any versions of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I can hardly believe that, this is the one you want to watch. Um, it appears on Turner Classic Movies fairly regularly. So does the one with Spencer Tracy. Uh, I actually watched both of them within four or five days of each other, not long back. And uh, yeah, this one's way better. And the cast, as I said, has Frederick March, Miriam Hopkins, Rose Hobart, Holmes Herbert, Halliwell Hobbs, and a few other people. Uh, the movie was made before the full enforcement of the Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code. And it's remembered today for its strong sexual content, which it does have, yes. Um, and it's embodied mostly by Miriam Hopkins playing Ivy Pearson. Um, she plays a very, very sexy woman for, like, 1931, you know. 
When it was re-released in 1936, the code required eight minutes to be removed before the film could be distributed to theaters. So, just in five years, the code was fucking movies right and left. This footage has been restored for VHS and DVD releases and on the movies you see on TV. The secret of the transformation scenes was not revealed for decades, and Mamoulian himself revealed it in a volume of interviews with Hollywood directors published under the title of The Celluloid Muse. See, makeup was applied in contrasting colors. Then a series of colored filters that matched the makeup were used, which enabled the makeup to gradually be exposed or made invisible, however they wanted it to, when changing one way or the other. The color change was not visible because it was a black and white movie. So that's pretty damn clever idea. Wally Westmore was the makeup man for Hyde, and he made him look, like I say, simian and hairy with large canine teeth, and he was influenced greatly by the popular image of Hyde in media and comic books. In part, this reflected the novella's implications of Hyde as embodying repressed evil and, by Victorian standards, being semi-evolved or simian in appearance, because, of course, back then, if you weren't a human, and let's say that means white human, um, you were primitive in some manner. And, of course, the most primitive were the apes because they were close to man, but not quite. Apes got a bad—gorillas especially— got a bad rap in Hollywood for a very long time. Now, the characters of Muriel Carew and Ivy Pearson do not appear in Stevenson's original story. Ivy's character originated to the film, while Muriel— does appear in the 19 the I'm sorry the 1887 stage version by playwright Thomas Russell Sullivan. Uh, an interesting fact here is that John Barrymore was originally asked by Paramount to play the lead role in an attempt to recreate his role from the 1920 version. So this was the first sound version, but the first version was John Barrymore 1920. But he already had a contract with Metro-Golda-Mayer. They wouldn't share him. Um, Paramount gave the part to Frederick March, who was under contract, and he bore a physical resemblance to John Barrymore. And that's how it went. You know, there's history. Now, to show you what bastards the people running Hollywood studios were back in the day, and to a lesser extent still are, when Metro-Golda-Mayer remade the film... Ten years later, 1941, with Spencer Tracy in the lead, the studio bought the negative and the rights to both the Mamoulian version and the earlier 1920 silent versions, paying $1,250,000. Every print of the 1931 version that could be located was recalled and destroyed, and for decades, the film was believed to be lost. The Spencer Tracy version was much less well-received, and Frederick March jokingly sent Tracy a telegram thanking him for the greatest boost to his reputation of his entire career. Now, of course, they found prints of the movie because it exists now, but still, shows you what a dick they were back in, back in the day. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde premiered in Los Angeles on December 24, 1931, and opened in New York on December 31, 1931, and it grossed $1.3 million in domestic rentals, which was a lot of money in 1931. The film was a box office hit on a par with the Universal Monster films of that era, 
even considering that its $535,000 budget was high for a horror film at the time. So it did really well. Now, critically, it received mostly positive reviews. Uh, people liked it. Critics still like it. Leonard Malton gave it three out of four stars, calling it exciting and floridly cinematic. And he praised uh, Marches and Hopkins' performances. So it's a good movie. The critics liked it. The public liked it. And if you watch it, you'll like it. So that is our horror movie review for this month. And next month, we'll have something else. And now it's time for more readings from the Doclopedia. Doclopedia entry number 549. The Colors. Brown. On January 3rd, 2002, all of the totally brown cows in the world went on a killing rampage against humans and other cattle. They seemed to have developed vastly increased intelligence, telepathic powers that allowed them to stun large numbers of their prey at once, extraordinary toughness, and the ability to speak. The latter ability was mostly limited to their saying, How now, motherfuckers? Eventually, they were defeated, but at a terrible cost to humankind, who had had to use chemical weapons that killed hundreds of millions of people and cattle. Afterwards, by international law, cattle could only be bred in black, white, or red colors, or combinations thereof. No brown cattle were allowed. Even so, most people are either terribly afraid of cattle or very respectful of them. And nobody eats beef anymore. Doclopedia entry number 550. The Colors. White. White blobs are one of the very few blobs, oozes, slimes, or jellies that are not dangerous to other living creatures, metals, or magic, or leather, or anything else. White blobs live in temperate climates, mostly in forests or lightly wooded areas. They are exclusively consumers of dead plant matter, including leaves, grasses, dead flowers, and small branches or vines. They excrete a top-quality compost and are in big demand by gardeners and orchardists. White blobs seem to have some intelligence, with the wizard Skliv Sklivornik saying that he would rate them at the level of a somewhat dim dog. As with all of the formless life forms, they reproduce via fission, splitting into two complete creatures about three or four times a year. White blobs are a nutritious, if somewhat disgusting, food source, and many creatures prey upon them. It's time for hex number seven of our hexless hex crawl. And for those of you on Patreon and listening to me there, you can uh, see the map I've done. For those of you not on Patreon, well, I'll describe it to you. So it is X number of days since your PCs left the area of the Dwarven family feud. And one thing you should do as they're passing through the woods and heading on to the next and actually final destination, is you should have indications show up that the guy they're chasing is not as far ahead of them as he used to be. The first place I would have them find something out is where he's rested and 
it apparently looks like he may have slept there for a while or whatever, so he's lost some hours there. Then maybe a day later or later that day, however you want to do it, you should come to a place where there is some sort of creature that this guy had to fight, and he's killed it. But there's a lot of blood, and you want to be able to differentiate the creature's blood from his blood. So maybe he fought something with green blood. Maybe he fought something he didn't have blood at all, like an ooze or some sort of giant insect or whatever. But whatever you end up having him fight, it's laying there dead, probably killed via magic, and there is blood, definite blood probably his, and if your people can detect it, they find out, yeah, it is the same blood that you know he would have. And that goes up the trail a ways, and then you can see where he stopped again to rest, and he probably took care of his wound, because you don't see much blood after that point, but you can tell that he's limping badly, and he's not moving very fast. Previously, he'd been moving at at least a jog and sometimes a really fast run, but now he's just limping along. So after a day or so, and by now they figure this guy is maybe a day ahead of him, maybe not even that much, they will come to a place where the woods are starting clear, and they will smell sulfur in the air and other gases that they associate with volcanic activity. And by the side of the trail, before they get out into the open from the forest, they will see a small hut. There's a little garden in front. There's a old, old guy tending it. And he will greet them a little suspiciously, but he's friendly. And they start to ask him about the person they're chasing, and he comes right out and says, I know the guy you're probably looking for. He passed through here yesterday afternoon. And I was up the hill there ways, and I saw him from behind a tree, and he came limping into my garden, and he grabbed a bunch of herbs, and he mashed them together, and he made a poultice for his leg, and he sat there a few minutes, and that's a real strong healing herb mixture that he made. And he healed up his leg pretty good. And then he took off down the road into the Badlands. And he wasn't limping quite so bad. But I don't know why he was going into the Badlands, but there was something familiar about him. Well, if your player characters tell him what they know about this guy being a famous, powerful magician, the evil guy, this old guy will remember. Because this old guy is really old. He's probably... A couple hundred years old and he remembers this guy going into the badlands as a young man and working all kinds of magic because there's an evil energy in there and he built the tower and he learned his magic and he brought in slaves and apprentices and all manner of people to help him and to run the place and then one day that was it end of the line so if the player characters ask about the Badlands, he'll walk a couple miles down the road with them where the trees end, and he'll tell them about it. And that's where we come to the picture. The picture I did is an enormous lava flow. At some point in the 
far distant past, some huge amount of lava bubbled up, and this area is probably 15 miles across, and there are fumaroles and small volcanoes and cracks in the ground, and there's some really nasty-looking, you know, barely hanging-on trees growing, and lots of rocky ground. It's very rough territory. And the old guy tells him that in the center, that's where that tower is. So that's where they have to go. Traveling through this, you can make it as rough or as easy as you want. The guy is a day ahead of him, but he's in rough shape. He, he probably had to rest before he started up doing anything. But when they get about halfway, they can see the tower because it's up on a hill. And it's, it's big, it's old. As they get closer, they'll realize this tower hasn't had anybody in it taking care of it for a long time. So whatever magic he hopes to start doing again, you know, he's either got to fix the place up or grab the magic and take it somewhere else. When they get to the tower, they will find that it's defended by whatever sort of creatures you want to have that live in this sort of lava field, desert sort of place. It's very barren. There's very little water running through it, and most of the water that runs through it is probably very sulfurous smelling and whatnot. And uh, when they get into the tower, well, that's up to you, GMs. You know, what kind of magic is this guy going after? What kind of magic is he... Does he have some powerful item there? Does he have his spell book? Does he have a, a battery of magic power that he, you know, grabs a hold of and he charges himself up? Or maybe he just went there to die. You don't know. What's he got defending this place? Well, it's been at least a century since he's been here. And so everything may have left. There might be a few things around. Um, golems would be around still. Maybe skeletons, things like that. And like I say, the creatures that live in this sort of terrain. But that's the end of the hex crawl. They go in there. Hopefully they defeat him. That's up to you, GMs. And then they can leave the Badlands the way they came. They can go off any other direction. Uh, they are weeks away from any real civilization. They may pass through some small villages or something, but... You know, any real civilization is a long way off. So there's the hex crawl, and I hope you enjoy it. And I would like to say that starting next episode, we will be doing one random character every week. The random character may be from fantasy, maybe from a Western situation, maybe from uh, pulp, maybe from modern. Maybe from anything, or it may be a character that can be used in any of these situations because they're just a character that you encounter in most of those situations, like a shopkeeper or a sheriff or something like that. So that starts next week. And for now, that's the end of the program. And because it's the end of the program, it's time for me to thank you all for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, on the Mastodon Dice Camp server as Doc Cross, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. 
And you patrons over on Patreon can leave a message, and they will get in touch with me right away. Let me know what it was. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two months before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross. For one-time or occasional donations, then you should go to my Ko-fi page, K-O-F-I, or pronounced coffee, I'm not sure. But I'm there, and you look me up as DocCross4591. If you would like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned. Our music was Bar Crawl by J.R. Tundra off of the YouTube Audio Library. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2023 by Doc Cross. I'll see you all next week. Live long and prosper.